All right. If you want to top up your coffee and uh, come on back in. I always feel bad interrupting your conversations. I know. It's good. It's good. Walter, can we be a little quiet? Like, can I be a little less? You know, if you sound loud to yourself, then you're probably loud to everybody else. So, probably. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome here. As Pastor Brad said, we are uh, getting close to the end of our series in uh, 1 Kings 22 and the prophet Elijah. We do. We stand for those things. And next week will be exciting. We'll, we'll, uh, Michael and Danny will step into the baptism tank, and that's going to be exciting as well. I'm going to start today by telling you a fable. Does everybody know what a fable is? Yeah? It's kind of like a story. has a little moral kick to it. I think if I remember my uh, grade 8 literature, English lit stuff. Anyways, this story is a story about Mr. Rabbit and Mr. Fox. And uh, life in the forest was actually quite good. Uh, and uh, animals were all getting along really well. And one day, Mr. Rabbit decided that it was time to invite Mr. Fox over for lunch. And so he went to all his... Mr. Rabbit, by the way, had the gift of hospitality. And uh, so he prepared this scrumptious meal and made sure that his, uh, his uh, home was all ready. And Mr. Fox, being his first invite to Mr. Rabbit's home, was knocked on the door. He was very impressed. And great uh, atmosphere, great ambiance, the whole thing. And so they sat down uh, for lunch. And as lunch went on, uh, Mr. Rabbit, who is, uh, was a self-professed philosopher and avid reader, naturally engaged Mr. Fox in conversation about life and society in the forest and how things were. And, and he started off by say, you know, saying, and Mr. Fox agreed, that, yeah, life in the forest was pretty good at the time. And, uh, but Mr. Rabbit had this idea that it could be even better. And he thought that, uh, and he expressed this to Mr. Fox and said, you know, I think if every animal was just given the right to do whatever they really wanted to do in the forest, like we could take good to great in the forest. Mr. Fox, eating his lunch, listened intently, wasn't totally uh, convinced by the argument that uh, life should be, I get what I want whenever I want, you get what you want whenever you want, but he started to puzzle, you know, mull it over in his head. And uh, he, he did have this twig of a very uh, appealing uh, sense of outcome with this. And so they went back and forth and, and, uh, and talked about this. And, and as uh, Rabbit uh, finally sipped the last of his, uh, his lemonade and, uh, and Mr. Fox downed his last uh, bite of lunch, uh, Mr. Rabbit said, well, well, what do you think? Do we... Do we take this out? Do we, do we go to the rest of the animals in the forest and do we, you know, like, get a grassroots movement going and, and enact this? And 
And Mr. Fox paused, and he said, Well, Rabbit, I think that such matters are far better dealt with and contemplated deeper after dessert. And with that, Mr. Fox sprang across the table and ate Mr. Rabbit for dessert. Sorry, kids. <laughs> Poor Mr. Rabbit. Convinced that he could improve life if each animal could simply be able to do whatever they wanted to do whenever they wanted to do it. How ironic. How prevalent in our society. But friends, if you subscribe to a theory like Mr. Rabbit, then you should never be surprised when such theory consumes you. Which is exactly what King Ahab in 1 Kings 22, as we continue our series in Elijah, discovered for himself. Now, this may be an unpleasant and an unwelcome topic to address, especially in our society today, but I think we do need to talk about it. Can we really just do whatever we want whenever we want? I mean, let's admit, we live in a very privileged society. And much of our way of life, especially in North America, is based on do what I want, when I want, how I want, and nobody tells me otherwise. Does God have limits, boundaries in how we live our life? And what happens in that moment when God declares, no more, enough? Those are often miscalculated and and uh, painful moments for us. But the truth is, friends, there are consequences to the misuse or the abuse of, of the life that God's given us. And King Ahab is a prime example of someone who finds this out. And we've been walking with him and Elijah in 1 Kings throughout the summer. So turn with me in your Bibles. It'll also come up on the screen. We're going to be in 1 Kings 22 on your devices those of you who have old school paper, 1 Kings 22 comes right before 2 Kings, if you're searching. You're welcome. 1 Kings 22, start at the beginning. It's a long chapter, but we are going to go through it all because the story is unbelievable. It's as uh, Ruth Ellen reminded us in, in previous week, and Mike has reminded us speaking in this, I mean, you can't. Hollywood can't script this kind of stuff. This is, this is, this is good stuff. Um, good drama. So for three years now, it says there was no war between the nation of Aram and Israel. Then during the third year, King Jehoshaphat of Judah, so remember, Israel is separated, two nations, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Uh, King Jehoshaphat from uh, Judah uh, comes up and visits King Ahab of Israel. And during the visit, the king of Israel said to his officials, Do you realize that the town of Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and yet we've done nothing to recapture it from the king of Aram? So Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, Will you join me in battle to recover Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replies to the king of Israel, Why, of course I'll do that. You and I are as one. Ironically, they weren't. They were separated, but they should have been. 
My troops are your troops. My horses are your horses. Then Jehoshaphat added, but first, let's find out what the Lord says. We've been saying it all year long, Jericho. Our first response in every situation is to pray. Seek out what the Lord is saying. And here Jehoshaphat throws that right off the hop. So the king of Israel summons the prophets, about 400 of them. Now, if you recall, back to the scene in 1 Kings, I think it was 18, the showdown on Mount Mount Carmel, where Elijah uh, calls down fire from heaven, and he has a challenge with, and he invites all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah. He wants them all there, and the 450 prophets of Baal show up, but we hear no mention of the 400 prophets of Asherah. They don't seem to appear, and the prophets of Baal do their thing all day long and end up dancing and cutting themselves. Nothing happens. Elijah steps up, one prayer, boom, fire, and then he takes out all the prophets of Baal. So whatever happened to all those prophets of Asherah? We don't know exactly, but the number 400 is the same, so we can assume that many, if not all, of them are found now here in the king's court still, providing so-called prophetic advice to King Ahab. Verse 6, so the king summoned the prophets, about 400 of them, and asked them, should I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or should I hold back? They all replied, yes, go right ahead. The Lord will give the king victory. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there not also a prophet of the Lord? We should ask him the same question. The king of Israel replied, there's one more man who we could consult who could consult the Lord for us, but I hate him. He never prophesies anything but trouble for me. His name is Micaiah, son of Imla. So now he's got two prophets that he hates. He hates Elijah and he hates Micaiah because they talk to the Lord and don't just tell him what he wants to hear. Jehoshaphat replied, that's not the way a king should talk. Let's hear what he has to say. So the king of Israel called on one of his officials and said, Quick, bring Micaiah, son of Imlah. King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah, dressed in their royal robes, were sitting on the thrones at the threshing floor near the gate of Samaria. All of Ahab's prophets were prophesying there in front of them. So there's 400 of these so-called prophets. One of them, Zedekiah, son of Kenanah, made some iron horns and proclaimed, This is what the Lord says. With these horns, you will gore the Arameans to death. And all the other prophets agreed. Yes, they said, go up to Ramath Gilead and be victorious, for the Lord will give the king victory. Meanwhile, the messenger who went to get Micaiah said to him, hey, Micaiah, look, all the other prophets are promising victory for the king, so be sure that you agree with them and promise success. If anyone is poised to get what they want, when they want, how they want, the king of a nation, right? I mean, that's somebody who's probably best positioned. And clearly, King Ahab is used to getting what he wants because all his prophets are telling him exactly what he wants. And the guy that he sends to go get the other guy that he doesn't like, first thing he does is say, this is what he's, everyone's saying, so get on board when you get there. Tell the king what he wants to hear. And so while it is true that King Ahab can surround himself with whoever he wants, and King Ahab is very well positioned to do what he wants, how he wants. The reality is that we all have that capacity. And the prophet Micaiah 
also has that capacity. And he chooses to approach life a little bit differently. Verse 14. But Micaiah replied, As surely as the Lord lives, I will say only what the Lord tells me to say. When Micaiah arrived before the king, Ahab, asked him, Micaiah, should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or should we hold back? I like Micaiah. Micaiah replied sarcastically, Yes, go on up, king, be victorious, for the Lord will give the victory. But the king obviously saw through that, replied sharply, How many times must I demand that you speak only the truth to me when you speak for the Lord? Then Micaiah told him, Well, in that case, in a vision, I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, Their master has been killed. Send them home in peace. Okay, well, that's not what the king wanted to hear, right? Verse 18. Didn't I tell you, the king of Israel exclaims to Jehoshaphat, he never prophesies anything but trouble for me. Then Micaiah continues. Listen to what the Lord says. In other words, this isn't just me, king. You asked me to tell you what the Lord is saying to you. Listen. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, so he's going to give him some background. Who can entice Ahab to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead so he can be killed? There were many suggestions. And finally, a spirit approached the Lord and said, I can do it. Well, how are you going to do it? The Lord asked. And the spirit replied, I'll go out and inspire all of Ahab's prophets to speak lies. You will succeed, said the Lord. Go ahead and do it. So you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all your prophets, for the Lord has pronounced your doom. Friends, there's a much greater reality taking place than just what's happening in the king's court at that time. There's something happening in the king of kings' courts as well. There's a spiritual reality that's taking place that supersedes what the king wants, how he wants it, when he wants it. Now, in previous times when God has been gracious and given the king uh, a glimpse into what's happening in the heavens, what's happening in the ultimate reality, King Ahab has humbled himself and he has asked for mercy and God has been merciful to him because God is patient and compassionate and he always pours out his mercy on those who humble themselves before him. Even the king, King Ahab, but this time, the opportunity doesn't present itself. Because, verse 24, Zedekiah, son of Kena, walks up to Micaiah and slaps him across the face, grabs hold of the scene. Since when did the Spirit of the Lord leave me to speak to you, he said. And Micaiah replied, you'll find out soon enough when you're trying to hide in some secret room. Arrest him, the king said. Take him back to Amon, the governor uh, of the city, and to my son Joash. Give them this order from the king. Put Micaiah in prison, feed him nothing but bread and water until I return safely from the battle. But Micaiah replied, if you return safely, it will mean that the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added to those standing around, everyone, mark my words. So Micaiah makes very clear this counter stance to what the king is saying. King, you're not going to get what you want, how you want it in this situation Micaiah is willing to risk his reputation. He's willing to risk his life, not for what he wants, but for what God is saying to him. 
How do things unfold? Verse 29, so King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah led their armies against Ramoth Gilead. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, uh, Ahab, he's sly, as we go into battle, I'm going to disguise myself. You make yourself look like a king. Basically what he's saying. So king of Israel disguises himself. They went into battle. Meanwhile, the king of Aram had issued these orders to his 32 chariot commanders. Attack only the king of Israel. Poor Jehoshaphat. Don't bother anybody else. So when the Aramean chariot commander saw Jehoshaphat in his royal robes looking like a king, which he was, but not the king of Israel, they went after him. There's the king of Israel, they shouted. But when Jehoshaphat called out and said, whoa, I'm not the king of Israel, the chariot commanders realized that he wasn't the king of Israel, so they stopped chasing him. Ooh, good thing King Ahab is on the sly, incognito. Nobody knows. He's not a king. He's not dressed like a king. He's safe. Verse 34, an Aramean soldier, however, I tell you, Hollywood can't write this, randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops and hit the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. Turn the horses and get me out of here, Ahab groaned to the driver of his chariot. I'm badly wounded. The battle raged all that day, and the king remained propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran down to the floor of his chariot, and as evening arrived, he died. Just as the sun was setting, the cry ran through his troops, we're done for, run for your lives. Remember Micaiah's prophecy. Israel scattered. Run for your lives. So the king died. His body was taken to Samaria and buried there. Then his chariot was washed beside the pool of Samaria and dogs came and licked his blood at the place where the prostitutes bathed, just as the Lord had promised. Mike brought it up in a sermon a couple weeks back. So another prophecy coming to fruition. The rest of the events in Ahab's reign and everything he did, including the story of the ivory palace and the towns he built, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Israel. So Ahab died, and his son Ahaziah became the next king. Now, if you recall, one of the very first things we read about King Ahab way back at the beginning of summer is that he was evil. He was more evil than all the other kings. Remember that. As we'll see probably next week, his son is a chip off the old block. One of the very first things we're going to read about his son is that he follows in his dad's footsteps. So not only uh, was Ahab evil in a long line of evil kings, but his son's going to take over. And we're reminded... Uh, Pastor Mike talked about it. You just get evil king after evil king after evil king. And, and you start to think, well, what is up with these kings? Like, don't they get it? I mean, they're the king of Israel, right? I mean, and yet they're evil after evil after evil. Why can't they get it together? Surely, if you and I could take over, be in charge, we'd get it. We would not be like Ahab or the other evil kings. And I think we'd probably do a pretty good job. But let's not be fooled into believing that because our reputations wouldn't be as bad as King Ahab's or because our actions might not be egregious as King Ahab's or the other evil kings, that we can ignore how God deals with disobedient and sinful people. Because the reality is this, friends. 
The sinful state of humanity is from generation to generation to generation, including ours. No one is without sin. No one escapes divine judgment. Not you, not me, on our own merit. We cannot do it. You may not be like King Ahab, but you are also not like the only one who walked the earth without sin. So we need to understand how God deals with us. We need to understand this concept of divine judgment. It's not just an interesting, dramatic story in the Bible. We can look at King Ahab's demise, and we can pull out some timeless principles regarding divine judgment. Let's do that. First one is this. God always acknowledges humility and we should never minimalize it. He always, always acknowledges humility. I said, you can't get any more evil than King Ahab. Let me give you some of the reminders. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. That was way back in chapter 16. We knew that. Chapter 21, verse 25. No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. In other words, there should have been no hope for Ahab. Like he, he should have been declared king and wiped out because that's how evil he was. But because at one point, chapter 21, verse 27, it says Ahab tore his clothing, dressed in burlap and fasted before the Lord, God responds with mercy. Verse 28 of chapter 21, then another message from the Lord comes to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me, the Lord says? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I'll destroy his dynasty then. Now, unfortunately, as uh, Mike said last week, Ahab's humble attitude, short-lived, it does not last. His tendency to invoke God's wrath is like that. But in those verses, we can and we should find a sliver, a truth that can change our lives. God's generous response to the humble. God's generous response to Ahab's momentary humility is a sign for us. Chuck Swindoll says, although evil reduces our stature before God, we are never as tall as when we humbly reach for God's mercy, acknowledging and confessing our sins to him. We're never as tall as when we do that. Friends, every single time we do that, God acknowledges you and says, yes, that's the right response. And he pours out mercy and grace. And that truth is also true for every generation. Just as it was true for Ahab, it is true for you today. Every single time you humble yourself before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he pours out mercy and grace without fail. Now, if we choose to forego that transformational truth, 
What then? Second principle. There is an end to God's patience, and none of us knows when it comes. No one can predict that. This too is true for everyone. An end comes for those who reject God's ways and God's warning. In his times, according to his means, he does implement judgment and say, enough. No more. Those words do come from the throne of the King of Kings. Now, who would you rather be in our story in 1 Kings? The king or a prophet? Most of us, probably on the surface, if we didn't know all the stuff about Ahab, would say, hey, king would be good. Prophets, hmm, their life's a little bit sketchy at times. And that's true, right? Look at Elijah. He didn't have palace comforts. He didn't have uh, the prestige and the power. He was often on the run. He was taking food from widows. He was drinking beside creeks that were drying up. I mean, and yet he was the one who every time the Lord spoke to him, he said, yes, Lord, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll say. Okay? Then there's King Ahab. King Ahab had all the comforts, the palace comforts, right? But he refuses to listen to godly counsel. And when he hears it repeatedly, he ignores it. In fact, he goes beyond ignoring it and goes defiantly against it at times. After all, he's the king. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. He's the king. But friends, only one person in this whole story is recorded, and we talk about him 2,800, 2,900 years later as still having a place of honor in God's story. And that's not King Ahab. It's the prophet Elijah. He's the one with a place of honor. And so I say as clear as day, if, if Elijah were here himself, be forewarned. There is divine judgment. God's patience does come to an end. You cannot just live your life the way you want to live it with no consequence. If you choose to ignore God's voice in your life, you may get away with it for a while. I can't predict how long or how short. But there will come a point where God will say into your life, enough, no more. There is an end to his patience. Don't test it. Don't toy with it. Don't see how long can I push it. Maybe another day. You do not know when that time will come. King Ahab thought he could push it. Went undercover. Nothing's going to happen. If anybody gets taken out, Jehoshaphat. I mean, this, that's great thinking. Random arrow. Random. Just happens to hit between the armor. Mortally takes him out. Okay. Friends, God keeps his promises. That's our third principle. God does keep his promises. And if you remember in the scriptures, he said through Elijah, because of that uh, moment of humility uh, and, and wanting to change his ways, God says to Ahab, okay, I'm not going to take you out in the sense of ending your dynasty. I'm going to do it during your... So he postpones. But he does keep his promise. And that's our third principle of divine judgment. 
he gives Ahab, as we've heard all summer long, and Jezebel, who's worse than Ahab, and Ahab was really bad, he gives the two of them every opportunity over and over and over and over again to change their ways, to hear his voice. And they ignore his patience. They abuse his mercy. They think that because God didn't act immediately, like boom, right now, then they must be able to get away with whatever they want. And eh. King Solomon says in uh, Ecclesiastes 8, he describes this philosophy of life. He says in uh, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11, when a crime is not punished quickly, as in the case of Ahab and Jezebel, people feel it safe to do wrong. Parents, we know that, right? We know that from disciplining our children. Little kids, you know, you, you, they do something, you don't wait the next day because, yeah, you, you take care of it right away. Even though a person sins a hundred times, King Solomon says, and still lives a long time, be forewarned, I know that those who fear God will be better off. Don't be fooled. God is not somehow lax or slack or sleeping on the job. He's not somehow up there uh, caught off guard. Whoa, what, what happened over there? I didn't re That's not how it works. He does not allow his patience and his mercy to be abused. He will and act and fulfill what he promises, and no one, not even a king, can stop him. King of Israel said to Jehoshaphat as we go into battle, you be the king. You dress in the royal robes. I'll go on the sly. I think he had, an, he had a sense something was coming. Friends, Ahab was a king living as if there was no offending God, living as if it didn't matter to God how he lived his life. It matters to God how we live our lives. 2 Peter chapter 2 tells us that God, not only does it matter how we live our lives, it, it matters to God how the angels live their lives. If you read in 2 Peter chapter 2, I was reading this morning, and the verse struck out at me, and I'm like, have I never read that verse before? And it says there that God deals with the angels who decided to sin immediately. Like, it matters. And I'm like, oh. We live our lives the way we want to live them, and then God sends people like Elijah and Micaiah into our lives in, to inject uh, a healthy dose of truth. And he does that out of his mercy for us when he has every right and every means to take us out. Don't ignore it. Don't rebel against it. God waited and waited with Ahab. Ahab was his child. I know we read he's the most evil king out of all, and, and we can just write him off and we can throw him over there in the Hitler category and, you know, like never going to be that bad. Ahab was God's chosen leader, king of Israel. Ahab was his prized possession, his child. And he wanted nothing more than Ahab to come back into relationship with him. Brad talked about that. God loves his church. God loves 
his community, the people. Every single one of us are that prized creation. You may not be a king with the means to do whatever you want to do whenever you want, but you are most certainly, I'm sure, not the most evil of your peers either. I'm pretty sure, at least the ones I know. But friends, when God speaks truth into your life, when he taps you on that proverbial shoulder, be it with an Elijah, be it with a Micaiah, be it with his word, be it with your spouse, be it however he does it, be it with a word while you're, while, while you're driving along and you hear it in a song. Or There's so many different ways that God communicates to us with a picture. Don't ignore it. Don't defy it. Don't push it away and say, I'll deal with it on another day. Don't test his patience because he does keep his promises. And as unpopular as it is today to say, divine judgment is one of his promises. It is there. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. That's also a promise for every generation. Tammy and the team are going to come up, and they're going to lead us in some more worship. And you may be processing, you may be fighting this thing. Ah, why is he up there talking about judgment and sin? And ah, ah, Like, I don't want to hear it. Maybe you don't want to hear it because you have been hearing it from different sources. The spirit of the Lord that lives in you is going to, one of his jobs is to point out the sin in our lives. I'll be honest, as I've been preparing this message all week long, the last two weeks, God's been working in my life and saying, Wally, and I've been like, ah, right? Like, it's real, and it's not easy. It's not easy to hold up that mirror and realize I'm not as good as I thought I was. Don't rationalize it away. Don't wrestle it away. Don't go and get another cup of coffee and uh, forget about it. That's not what we're here to do today. Humble yourself. God always, always acknowledges the humility of his people before his throne. Seek his mercy. We're going to have people on the sides who can pray with you. Brad and Katie and Sylvia and myself will be over there to pray with you. We'll help you walk through it. Yes, we have a God who delivers divine judgment. Yes, there is a time and a place where all evil will be cast into the lake of fire. We're going to get to that in the book of Revelations. Yes, we have a God who takes care of that. But we also have a God who every single time someone says, I'm sorry, acknowledges and pours out mercy and grace and forgiveness because he sent his son to the cross to allow us to do that. That was Jesus' whole purpose for going to the cross so that we could come before the king of kings and say, screw it up again. I know I can hear, I can, I can sense it, I can feel it, Lord. You're, you're not letting me go on this one. That's the Spirit convicting. That's the, one of the roles of the Spirit. And it's not there just to make you feel bad. 
We got enough things in life that make us feel bad. It's there so that we are spurred to the other greater truth that in Jesus Christ, I can take that sin, I can take that screw up, I can take that disconnection in my life between me and God, and I can go before the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and I can get down on my proverbial knees and say, in the name of Jesus, would you forgive me? And it's like fire hose gush of mercy and grace. That's what happens. That's why the Spirit convicts us of the sin. That's why we have that thing we call a conscience. So that we can get to that place of experiencing the love and the grace and the mercy of the God who created us and said, I want to be in relationship with you for eternity. So whatever you're processing this morning or in the coming week, don't push it off. Don't ignore it. Don't, uh, you know, go out and get Starbucks to make yourself feel better or grab that extra donut or whatever it is that you do to make yourself feel better. Deal with it. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is inviting you to his throne. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you deal with us with such mercy and grace. that even when we were sinners, so undeserving, you would send your son Jesus to the cross on our behalf. And he would pay the price. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, that when you left, you sent the Holy Spirit and said he would dwell within us and he would lead us into truth. Thank you, Holy Spirit for taking us to those places in our hearts and in our minds and our spirits that are not so pleasant. That can be very dark, sometimes confusing, sometimes very painful. And thank you that you've created a way, Father, to come to you and to experience your mercy and your grace and your healing in those places. And that you have conquered every sin through your son Jesus. You have paved a way of mercy and grace to your throne for each and every one of us. We give you thanks and praise. Work in our lives, search our hearts, know us, and make yourself known to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.